Today we're concluding this series that I've been doing for a little while on the subject of investment and return. And we've been exploring ways in which we can invest in our relationship with God, in the kingdom of God, in order to have the kind of life that I believe that God wants us all to have, a fruitful life, abundant life, blessed life, life really as it was meant to be lived. And the degree to which we experience that kind of life is related to how much we choose to invest. And so we've looked at these various areas so far of investment and return. We looked at doing all that we can do to please God, in sowing to please God rather than trying to please ourselves. We looked at this amazing harvest that we might reap uh, and experiencing love and joy and peace in our relationships rather than hate and discord and destruction. We looked at remaining in Jesus. Jesus talked about being the true vine and the branches remaining in him and the sap of our life flowing from that source. And uh, we can see through that experience incredible fruitfulness and increased impact for God's kingdom. We looked at engaging with the Bible and by doing that how we could flourish, how we could live energized and resourced, how we could grow in wisdom. And then we looked at investing our treasure investing our money in God's kingdom and how that sets us up for reward by God. Not only in heaven, do you remember the dot and the line? If you haven't seen that, I recommend you watch it on the website. But also in the here and now, also in this life with increased freedom and increased joy and meaning in life as well as intimacy with God. And today I want to look with you at another area where we can invest and can receive a wonderful return on that investment. Now, first of all, I'm going to give you a picture of what that return can look like. And I'm doing that from Isaiah, who wrote about 2,700 years ago. God's chosen people, Israel, were not living the way God intended, and all sorts of things were going wrong for them. And so through Isaiah, the Lord is saying, look, if you do certain things in line with my will, this will be the result. And so I'm going to look at this passage today with you from Isaiah chapter 58. I don't have my Bible with me today because I'm doing this from the message translation because I think it brings a freshness to a text that many of you probably will have heard before. So Isaiah 50 verse 8, the text will come up on the screens. Do this, and this is the investment we're going to talk about today, and this is the return. Do this, and the lights will turn on. And your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and I'll say, here I am. Your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I will always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. The Lord says here, your life will be lit up, your life will glow, it'll be bathed in sunlight, your journey will be secure, I'll answer your prayers when you need my help, I'll guide you, I'll strengthen you, you'll flourish like a well-watered garden, like a gurgling spring, you'll be refreshed, you'll be able to refresh others, and I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places. Awesome. That's an amazing couple of verses. This passage is a wonderful summary 
of what the full life might look like, what the return might be. And you might join me in saying, okay, I'm in. I want that. If that's the return, then what do I need to do? What do I need to invest in order to get that? Well, let's read from verse 6. This is the investment. Break the chains of injustice. Get rid of exploitation in the workplace. Free the oppressed. Cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. If you are generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, then those things we've just looked at will describe your life. In the book, The Way In Is The Way On, Carol Wimber recounts the story of how her husband, John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard Movement across the world, there are about a thousand vineyard churches in uh, dozens of countries across the world, how he was first impacted regarding serving the poor. So this is before John Wimber came into pastoral ministry. I think he dabbled a little bit in other denominations, and then he was a consultant for a while, church growth consultant. But before he began the Vineyard Movement, he'd been attending a convention of another denomination that had initially, initially been made up of predominantly poor farmers and other sort of uneducated people. But over time, this organization, this denomination had become more and more affluent, and uh, many of them now had new cars and bigger houses, and, and they'd lost some of what initially was there when this movement was birthed. And John had been spending some time with these people for a few days, and he was so impacted by the experience of it that he stayed up the entire night reading and rereading and praying and weeping over the passage that we're looking at tonight, Isaiah chapter 58. And he called Carol in the morning, and he was just weeping, and this is Carol's account of John's experience. She says this, John described their old evangelist with his voice blown out from the years of preaching out in the fields. There wasn't a sound in that enormous tent except the rough, broken voice of that old man calling the people back to God and to the ministry they were called to by God. He told them to go find your old overalls and work boots and go out to the needy again. He said, feed them like you used to. Help them like you did before when you'd clean their babies for them and heal their sick little ones. That's how you started. Go back where you started. Go back where you began. Go back to God. And John listened, Carol writes, and watched as the conviction of the Holy Spirit rested on these people and the weight of God's presence moved them like wind over a field of wheat. The only sound was a deep, quiet moaning. Carol writes, John told me it was the most powerful time he had ever experienced. I wept with him. Then he said, Carol, if the Lord ever calls me to pastor again, I want us to minister to the poor, the hungry, and the needy. Okay? Okay, I said. And apparently God said okay too. Our care for the poor is something which has been entrusted to us in the vineyard it is something we must guard, we must cherish, we must practice, because it is very, very important to God himself. Now, there's enough, enough material in the chapter 58 here for a whole series on issues of justice and care for the poor, but I just want to 
focus on two verses that give us some keys about how we can invest in serving others in order to see the return that is described in verse 8 onwards that I highlighted just now. God speaks to his people through the prophet Isaiah saying this, what I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. If you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, then you'll experience the kind of return on investment uh, that will lead to a full life. Isaiah makes a clear link between this amazing picture that he paints of a full life, a fulfilling life, and a life characterized by serving those in need. It's fascinating to see that this principle is understood even by those who've never read the Bible or wouldn't necessarily have a faith. I was watching Oprah Winfrey some time ago, and she was looking with some experts at the effects of serving people in need. And she noted that those who volunteer in areas of care for the poor, or care for those in need specifically, they tend statistically to be healthier and to live longer. And to quote Oprah, people who volunteer and help others have a better quality of life. Philip Yancey, who is a Christian author, but he used to be a journalist, described it this way. He writes, my career as a journalist has afforded me opportunities to interview stars, including football greats, actors, music performers, authors, politicians, and television personalities. These are the people that dominate the media. We pore over the details of their lives. Yet, in my limited experience, he says, I've found that our idols are as miserable a group of people as I have ever met. Most have troubled or broken marriages. Nearly all are incurably dependent on psychotherapy and seem tormented by self-doubt. I've also spent time with people I call servants, doctors and nurses who work among leprosy patients in rural India, a graduate who runs a hotel for the homeless in Chicago, relief workers in Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, Bangladesh. He writes, I was prepared to honor and admire these servants, to hold them up as inspiring examples, I was not prepared to envy them. Yet as I now reflect on the two groups side by side, stars and servants, the servants clearly emerge as the favored ones, the graced ones. Without question, I would rather spend time among the servants than among the stars. They possess qualities of depth, and richness, richness, and even joy that I have not found elsewhere. So let's take a look at those things that Isaiah exhorts us to do in serving others. He's speaking into this context of people within Israel who are hungry, homeless, poorly clothed, and unsupported. And he's, God is saying through Isaiah, do something about it. So let's just focus on this one verse, verse 7. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry. We do a ton of stuff here in the life of the church, organized ministries, rotors, all that sort of thing. But I love to hear stories, as I do from time to time, about members of this church who seek to serve those around them just in the everyday without someone organizing a rotor for them to be on. It's just part of expressing God's love to those they meet. And I know of a guy in the church here who used to pass by a particular homeless guy every morning on his way to work. 
I guess he left early for work, and at that same time every day, this man was asleep. So he began this habit in the morning of making two packed lunches, one for himself and one for this guy. And as he would pass him each morning, guy would be asleep, he would just silently drop his lunch down and walk on on his way to work. I love that. I'm sure the homeless guy loved it as well, but it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. One of the hallmarks of the early church 2,000 years ago was that they served the poor. They put what Isaiah had taught here into practice. I'm going to give you a very short little glimpse of history. I researched this over the weekend. I thought, that's fascinating. I hope you find it fascinating too. So go back to the 4th century. Some of you know that the Roman emperor Constantine became a Christian, became a believer, and he declared the entire Roman Empire officially a Christian empire. He said, everyone's got to follow the Christian religion. Now, there are pros and cons to what he did there. But anyway, he died in 337 AD, and he was succeeded by other Christian emperors. Less than 20 years after Constantine's death, a guy called Julian became emperor, and for a number of years, he maintained the Christian faith right across the empire. But in his last couple of years, he suddenly and unexpectedly declared himself a follower of of the old pagan gods, and he sought in his latter couple of years to stamp out Christianity. Now, he utterly failed. Christian uh, belief and, and practice continued to thrive and grow across the empire, and he was known as Julian the Apostate. Apostate means gave up believing in God, and he was uh, determined to persuade people back into the ancient pagan religion and worshipping of Roman gods. But he found that more and more people being drawn to Christianity. And he was really frustrated with his endeavors here because these Christians who didn't believe in the Roman gods, they believed in Jesus Christ, he actually called them atheists. Now, an atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God, right? But it wasn't the Christians didn't believe in God, they did. They believed in the one true God but they didn't believe in all his gods. So as far as he was concerned, these Christians were atheists. They didn't believe in the Roman gods, the pagan gods. And so this is what he writes. This is a quote from Latin that's been translated. Atheism, by which he meant the Christian faith. Atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans, that's those who don't worship my gods and come, you know, Jesus was a Galilean, came from Galilee, these godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. He's so frustrated. These wretched Christians couldn't stop their advance of, uh, you know, the Christian uh, faith, because these wretched Christians loved everybody, and they cared for the poor, not just their own poor, but they cared for the poor right across the empire. Deuteronomy chapter 15 records God's earlier command to his people, Israel. Deuteronomy 15, uh, verses 7 following, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites, do not be hard-hearted and tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. 
there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed. So we're no longer in the message, which is much more modern words. We're in the NIV, New International Version. But I love the words that they've used here in translating the original Greek. Hard-hearted, tight-fisted, open-handed. Don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and give generously to them. And so the text here just contrasts the two ways that we can deal with the poor. We can be tight-fisted. We can be open-handed. A hard heart leads to tight-fistedness. A generous heart leads to open-handedness. Verse 10, Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Interesting, just a connection of what we do with our hands. We all have hearts. We all have hands. Our hands can be tight-fist. They can be open. And he will bless what we put our hand to if it's an open hand. God loves to see open hands. He can fill them. You can't fill a tight fist, can you? You can't squeeze anything in there. He can fill them because he wants to, uh, what he puts in, he wants to know is going to be able to flow out to others. Today we have a welfare system in this country which ensures that most of our nation don't go hungry. But recent statistics show that food bank use is at an all-time high in this country. Britain's biggest provider of food banks, the Trussell Trust, gave out more than a million food parcels in their 2014-15 financial year. More than a million. From just 26,000 food parcels in the 08-09 year. As our nation just began to drop into this financial crisis. Gone from 26,000 to over a million over a period of six years. That's 4,000% increase. We live in an affluent society, but there are people around us who are in desperate need. And so in response, as a church, we have set up numerous areas of ministry through which we can express God's love and care for those who are in need. I just want to expand on this point a little. This is the longest point in the talk, but beyond sharing our food, just to include more generally being generous and giving yourselves to those in need. So just uh, whatever it is, weeks ago, a week before Christmas, a small team of us drove up to Carlisle to serve alongside others from the Carlisle Vineyard who were tirelessly reaching out into their community every day following the floods that were caused by Storm Desmond. And we drove up there. It was absolutely heartbreaking. Thousands of homes had been flooded. Some were six foot deep in water, and uh, it had receded by the time we got there. Kitchens had been torn out. Many houses, like this one, you can see through the window where it's lit up, had to have all the plaster knocked off all the downstairs walls right through the house. Some of them had floors up. This is Andy and Rhoda, the Carlisle Vineyard pastors with a van. They call it the encouragement shed. It had a big sign on the side, and it was filled with food and hot drinks and cleaning products. And the teams, we broke up into twos and threes. We just went round house to house, giving out food, giving out hot drinks, offering to carry furniture into skips, help clean up generally. And when we offered to pray for people, everyone we asked said, yes, please. And we were able just to rest our hands on people on a shoulder, you know, in the middle of their wrecked homes and pray. That small church up in Carlisle is a shining example of what followers of Jesus do when people need help. Earlier that same week, I was privileged to be on the team with many of you at the Arches, 
which welcomed the first 60-something Syrian refugees being housed across the city. And working with the city council and with other organizations, the Arches was the reception center for these families. They arrived from Syria by plane, coached them, brought them straight to the Arches. And uh, they were carrying everything they owned in a few holdalls. And we were able to give them a hot meal and hot drinks and winter clothing and toys for the children before team members then drove them to their various homes that they've been uh, given, provided. And it really was an absolutely profound experience for all of us, a mixture of sort of near overwhelming compassion mixed with a sense of gratitude at the privilege that we would have this opportunity to be in that place at that time. And I was so moved. I, I got home. Debbie couldn't come because she was ill. Got home and just not only during the occasion was I unable to speak at various points, but actually when I got home, I was so choked up I couldn't actually get the words out to describe what had happened. It was an incredible privilege and very, very moving. Just this week, I heard that the Arches has a new van, and on Thursday, three days ago, the team went out, and with this van, they collected 50 bed bases, 49 chests of drawers, and some mattresses from a hostel that's closed, and this larger capacity van apparently meant fewer trips, less time, less fuel than would have been the case before. And so, in summary of my first and longest point, about sharing our food with the hungry, you see that I slipped a few more stories which go way beyond food. Let's move on. What I'm interested in seeing you do is inviting the homeless poor into your homes. If you have a spare room, maybe the Lord would ask you sometimes to let someone stay who doesn't have somewhere to stay. Night Stop is an initiative that we run with another church in Nottingham, the Christian Center, Heart Church. It provides emergency oversight accommodation in homes of host families for 16 to 25-year-olds who are at risk of becoming homeless or already are homeless. And though Debbie and I don't get to do this very often now, since Nottingham Nightstop began many years ago, we've been a host family. And we've had young people in all manner of trouble and difficulty stay at our house, usually for one night, sometimes for more. And I remember uh, a few years ago, Debbie and I sat and watched BBC One's program. It was called Famous, Rich, and Homeless, in which a handful of celebrities spent 10 days sleeping rough. And watching it with us was a young woman who had earlier that week been sleeping outside near the pitcher and piano in the lace market. And in the middle of the night, she had had to get up and flee, leaving her sleeping bag, leaving her belongings, when a group of drunk lads tried to grab her. And she was convinced that she would have been raped had she not managed to escape. So watching that program with her that night was a slightly surreal experience, this stark reality of life being played out on our television screen at the same time on our sofa. Last winter, The Arches was one of the venues uh, which housed the winter shelter, providing bed and breakfast for 20 homeless people a night for a number of weeks. We'll be doing the same again this winter, begins fairly soon, and we'll also this time be doing the laundry for all the venues and using our van to transport equipment around. And a last thought, just on inviting those without homes into our homes, is that following the evening on fostering and adoption that we did a few months ago, it's wonderful to hear stories now coming through of children being fostered and adopted in the church here, being embraced into loving families. 
Isaiah goes on. What I'm interested in seeing you do is putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad. Of the 3,000-plus people who visited the arches last year, many of these people received clothing as part of that support that we provide to individuals and families. Of those 3,000-plus, over 400 were refugees or asylum seekers, including many children. And with clothing, you know, many of you will have, if you look through your wardrobe, you've got stuff you don't wear anymore. And it may be appropriate to go through that and see if anything might be appropriate to give to the Arches, otherwise to a charity shop. As it happens at the moment, I'm told the Arches is pretty much full of clothes. But we always need uh, more men's stuff, especially jeans, coats, other trousers, things like that. Things which the Arches are always short of are towels, double quilts, bedding, and so if you've got any of those, you might like to drop them off any time that the Arches is open. Let me tell you one of the lovely little stories, the many stories that come in about how God loves to join in with our efforts. So a mother came to the Arches wanting clothes for her 10-year-old son. And when the project work worker went to look, there just wasn't anything suitable. And the project worker told them, I'm sorry, there just aren't any. And so she said that they could just pray. And so they prayed that God would provide the clothes that she needed for her son. And then someone just came in with a massive bin liner which said on it, clothes, boy, age 10, which was full of beautifully laundered and folded clothes. Isaiah writes, what I'm interested in seeing you do is being available to your own families. It's not just a case of ministering to those we don't know. What about our own family? The Lord has entrusted our families to us as our first priority after him. So being highly committed to serving the poor, while in so doing being so busy that our children or our spouse or our elderly parents or other relatives are neglected, is out of balance. The Lord doesn't want us serving at the arches three days every week on the prison team, doing the soup run, and ignoring those we're related to who might also need our help. Let's just look again at verse 10. If you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out. Now, this part of the text carries words which emphasize even more than in the previous verses the degree to which we're exhorted to care uh, for those who need help. We're generous with. We are we're giving ourselves to the down and out. The NIV, and I believe the TNIV as well, translated, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, if you spend yourselves, giving ourselves, spending ourselves is a lot more than just caring. It's actually caring in a way that costs us. If you'll do that, Isaiah says, if you'll serve till it hurts, then the promises which follow in the text will be yours. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells us, give away your life. You'll find life given back, but not merely given back, given back with bonus and blessing. I'm delighted that I guess the majority of people in this church serve at least occasionally in some area that cares for those in need. And many find that serving people who are far worse off than, them, than themselves is a great blessing, puts life into perspective. 
you know, many of those who first come to the arches, which incidentally is next door if you don't know what I'm talking about, one of our other buildings, when they first come, that's their route into finding us. And then before you know it, they're on a team, they're serving other people. And I've heard a number of stories of people saying, I came, I was an addict, I was depressed, I didn't, know, didn't want to live. I started serving other people, realized there were people worse off than I was, and it's changing and has changed my life. Just before Christmas, I was talking to a friend of mine here in the church, George Taft, and I asked him if I could tell you what he said. He started telling me stuff. I thought, this relates to this. So I got my little phone out and recorded it and transcribed it. And uh, he said, yeah, I could tell you as long as it didn't accidentally communicate that people who are already overcommitted should in any way feel guilty about saying no to more serving opportunities. So hear it with that heart. It's simply his experience he was telling me. And sometimes it is right to say no because... uh, We just can't do that. This is what he said. I'd had an incredibly busy couple of months of work, and he really did. I'd asked him, you know, how did it go this last two months? It's been so intense. I had an incredibly busy couple of months of work. From mid-October onwards, I was often working evenings and weekends, hardly managing to take any days off. It was a challenge to get to church on Sunday mornings. I'd been away that week traveling, and knowing that as I got back to Nottingham on the Friday evening, the soup run was in my diary. I was thinking, that's the last thing I need. Our group had made the sandwiches. We packed the bags. We headed into town. It was raining. I had just felt bleak, run down. As we began, we prayed as a group. And through the experience that evening, I felt a kind of rebalancing as we served others in need. We finished about quarter to ten but we'd not run out of sandwiches and other perishable food. Someone asked, could someone else, could someone take these to the night shelter in the meadows? Now, I was one of the only ones with a car. I put the address in my sat-nav. I took the stuff. I found the shelter. I walked in with the bags and was once again in an environment characterized by compassion and serving. When I got home, after doing that, I actually felt enthusiastic somehow with more energy, even though I should have been exhausted. Feeling compassion, being able to pray with people and having a connection with others was evidently something that was missing from my day-to-day living. In my working life, he said, I spend a lot of time with lawyers and people in business, and it's all very cerebral and task-orientated. And too often, appearance and perceived status can seem to count for a lot. At times, it can feel like there's a danger of too much of the world's values rubbing off on you. Taking part in areas of service, like the soup run, brought me into contact with a side of life I'd be pretty cut off from. And contrary to my misplaced feeling at the start of the evening that it was the last thing I needed, with hindsight, it was exactly what I needed, as it made me feel more human and closer to God. That night's soup run may have been more a blessing to me than to those I'd sought to serve. So the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, exhorts us to spend our lives on those in need. Now that may lead us to ask the question, does that mean that those who serve at the arches and on the soup run and doing night stop are going to be blessed in a way that others who serve elsewhere aren't? You know, some serve in Vineyard Kids, some in ministries that facilitate us meeting here tonight, on Sundays, in small groups, various other things, Alpha and so on. Because the These people serve in these areas. Hundreds of others are released to serve in those ministries which specialize more in serving those in need. We're only able to have the arches because we have a church with the resources and the people to make those ministries happen. 
coming back to the issue of hands being tight-fisted, open, and God blessing what our hands do, our hands reach out to those in need. But we're a body. You might say, because I'm not a hand, am I less valuable? The Apostle Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians. Because I lead a small group, because I work in Vineyard Kids, because I serve refreshments on a Sunday, is my ministry less important to the Lord? I think the answer is no. As a body, we do these things. It's not just the hands, okay? The hands need arms. The arms need shoulders. They need to be connected to a body full of organs in order to be able to function as hands. So as a body, here at Trent, we share our food with the hungry. As a body, we put clothes on the shivering ill-clad. As a body, we invite the homeless poor into our homes. So I think it's fair that as God, through the prophet Isaiah, addresses his chosen people corporately rather than just as individuals, so this text may rightly address us as a church. As a church, we need to ask ourselves, are we doing these things? I think the answer is yes. We need to ask ourselves, is there more that God wants us to do? I think the answer is yes. You know, we are a really blessed church. Doesn't matter what criteria you use, as you look at Trent Vineyard, we are incredibly resourced, incredibly blessed. And I believe that that is partly to do with return on investment. I believe that God put something very precious in our DNA about caring for the poor. I think over the years we've demonstrated that. We've invested hugely in it. And I think God loves it, to be quite honest with you, and provides in all sorts of other ways as part of his blessing on our choice of obedience there. Our vision for this church was that we would not just have a few people who would specialize and be the, that little tiny team that cares for the poor, but that, that hundreds would be involved at some level. And at the same time, have hundreds of other people who would pour their lives into working with children and with youth and strengthening families and marriages and leading people to faith in Jesus, creating opportunities for the body to worship together, equipping people in their workplace, providing pastoral support and care and, and on and on. So I don't believe it's vital for everyone to sign up on a rota uh, which directly serves the poor. If you're faithfully serving in another area, be affirmed in doing that. Because of you doing what you do, others are blessed and in turn can be released to be a blessing to others. And of course, all of you who give financially to the church are participating in serving the poor. As a church, we spend a significant amount of money on things like the arches and other ministries that care for those in need. Without your giving, it would not be possible. So every time you give, every time that standing order rolls out of your bank or that note or coin goes in the offering, you're participating in what Isaiah is talking about here tonight. For all of us, of course, it's not just about being on rotors and, and so on. When, when we come across needs that we're in a position to meet and we sense God prompting us to meet them, let's not shy away from it just because it's inconvenient. Structured rotors and ministries, they're great because they enable us to serve our community in ways that are really effective, really consistent, but they're by no means the only way to serve others. And when those opportunities come up in our everyday lives, it's a natural part of following Jesus to embrace those moments. The Apostle Peter writes in his first letter in 1 Peter 4, Be quick to give a meal to the hungry, a bed to the homeless, cheerfully. Be generous with the different things that God gave you, passing them around so all get in on it. 
And so, in summary of all we've talked about today, Proverbs 11, verse 25, captures this whole picture of the return of a rewarding life coming from spending our life on others. And it says this, the one who blesses others is abundantly blessed. Those who help others are helped. Now, if you want to explore ways in which you can serve in the life of the church, let me encourage you at the end to go to the Connect area and explore whether it's some area of ministry to the poor, whether it's anything else at all. Just talk to them there, and maybe you'd like to try something out. Sign up on some area of ministry. As I finish this series, this five-part series, it's worth saying, of course, there are many other areas that we can invest in and receive a return on in the Christian life. But if we really give ourselves to these five things, and seriously, if you've missed any of these talks, I'd encourage you to listen to them or watch them on the website. You'll understand the whole picture that I've painted. If we really will do these five things, I believe that most of us would experience, would find our experience of life in Jesus radically transformed. Life spent focusing on ourselves, trying to make our own life happier and fuller will never lead to fulfillment. You'll notice that the five talks in this series are all about submitting our lives to something greater than our own self-interest, choosing to deny ourselves the freedom to sow to our sinful nature, sacrificing time when we might be doing other things to focus on our relationship with the Lord and His agenda as we abide in Him, investing time in His Word and seeking to live out what it says, giving our money to further the work of the kingdom, spending our life on others, And yet, as Jesus promised, in losing our life for his sake, we find it. And we find it in abundance.